Well, um, lately I've been reading a book on how to tell stories to children. And the premise of this book um, is that anybody can be a storyteller, and you just need to have a sound imagination, and you got to be willing just to try it, whether it's just using regular everyday examples. And, um, you know, I, that's been really been my, old, my, my desire. I don't think that I'm a great storyteller at all, but in the end, it's not about necessarily the content or whether you got all the transitions right, but it, it's a matter of just building and bridging a relationship uh, between you and, and the listener. And so um, what we also see about stories is that there's something not only special forged between um, the listener and um, the, the, the teller of the story, but sometimes it could just convey a point, convey a point that could be better than any logical arguments and can diffuse even arguments um, with that. So lately, um, when my kids complain, my natural tendency is just to go, well, when I was your age or, <laughs> you know, uh, we never complain and just like lecture them. But um, I've just been trying just a different approach of telling my children stories on this spot. And so, like, there was a time in which Ezra was uh, wiggling. In fact, he wiggles. He has a hard time sitting on his chair during dinner. And so, uh, instead of telling him, sit down for like the hundredth time, I asked him, have you ever heard of the story of Mr. Wiggleworm? Yes, Mr. Wiggleworm had such a hard time uh, sitting in his chair for dinner because, you know, he was very wiggly. And so his parents um, kept on laboring day and night to create this, the greatest, the most yummiest, delicious meal ever to keep him still. And, his, and as his parents would just be in the kitchen and just uh, think about different concoctions, and he would smell these things in the kitchen, his mouth just watered in anticipation of, what is my parents really cooking so that I wouldn't be wiggly? And so when Mr. Wiggly Worm sat down to eat his meal, uh, his most delicious meal, his parents gave him a covered plate. And when he opened it, he found the most delicious scrumptious, wiggly worm uh, that was deep fried. Needless to say, he never wiggled again. (laughs) Um, To be sure, um, Ezra still wiggles some. In fact, he wiggles a lot, but it's better. But as I was writing this sermon, I mean, it's not, it's never, there's never like a, a, a silver bullet. But as I was writing this sermon, I, I, I actually forgot about this story. And so a few days later, I was like, hey, Ezra, uh, do you remember that story about Mr. Wiggleworm? And they literally told me verbatim. In fact, whenever I launch into a story, whenever I say, hey, have you ever heard of, they like literally, they just are mesmerized. They sit down, they stop with whatever they're doing and because they want to hear what daddy has to say. Um, and now Ezra's favorite thing is to say, daddy, I have a story. Um, and so he just kind of goes into a story about um, ants or Um, fried worms or whatever uh, he's seen. But see, there's power in this story. And this must have been the effect that Jesus had on his listeners. Jesus is just this great master storyteller who captivated his hearers with this idea of a kingdom. Yet using the most ordinary and daily commonplace things, whether it be weeds or leaven um, or soil. That would be probably akin to what we would see today as like a laptop or a cell phone or water bottles or keys. And yet Jesus just takes these ordinary things and he uses them to grip the listeners. Here he's describing and showing them something so commonplace 
and he's showing them something of unimaginable worth. Can you think of anything that can accurately describe the kingdom of God? How can it really describe the kingdom of God and his value? I mean, how could you describe the treasure of God's kingdom and surrendering? What actually pictures this all-out surrender? And this is what Jesus did in these last three parables on the kingdom. Jesus labors to show that the kingdom of God is worth any price. First, he says uh, that it carries a high price, and then it also carries a high price tag for those who don't labor to pursue it. And then lastly, we'll see what it promises us for those who are trained by it. So let's go ahead and take a look at Matthew chapter uh, 13, verses 44 to uh, 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And so in this uh, passage, uh, oh, and let's go into, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What we see here is that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is worth more than any price. This is just on the cusp of a powerful image of a farmer and an enemy who introduces weeds into his crop and at the end harvests the wheat and then sees that the wheat coexists with the tares and then, and, or the weeds and then throwing the weeds away. And in that same picture, Jesus has this sobering judgment that one day people will be trapped in judgment and be doomed to a life without God uh, for all time. And then Jesus closes that with saying, let he who has ears, let him hear. And then he immediately shifts over to this man in the field. Well, if I'm honest, in my mind, I'm thinking about the plights of the millions and billions of people who remain trapped in sin. I'm thinking of the millions who are ensnared in the multiple endless cycles of rebirth that Hinduism believes that they have no hope that they will ever outweigh their bad with the good and are doomed to repeating a vicious cycle. I'm thinking about some of my own family members who have died a Christless eternity. And it's hard for me to wrap my eyes around this and go into this story. But that's why I think Jesus goes back to back and engages our hearts with a story of a man who discovers a treasure hidden in a field, then hides it, and then empties all, everything he has in order just to buy it. You know, this doesn't really ring true for us, because when was the last time you wandered into somebody's field? Like you wandered into like a football field or, um, you know, a, 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 a place out in hill country, and you found something of amazing um, value. And then you hit it, and then you took out your life savings, and, and then you went out and you bought it. I don't know if that, I can't think of anybody who would do that. In fact, it almost sounds downright unethical to us. But Jesus is saying to, not to be deceitful or dishonest. Jesus' primary concern is not about the ethical issues in this story. Because we know that Jesus uses questionable things, right, in his parables to make the points. The point is that this person has found something that has been hidden, tucked away, out of sight, out of mind, even by the owner. And the man knows that it's so valuable, it's worth more than he's ever owned or will ever own. He's willing to sell everything he has just to be able to take it. People thought he was probably really crazy, maybe even a little brash. 
Maybe not thinking about his family or about his future. This may have included his retirement, his life savings, but he says, I'm going to empty it all because this is what I have in that treasure is more, worth more potentially than anything I've ever previously owned. In the parable of the pearl, we also see this, that a man which has actually stumbled um, has stumbled across the hidden treasure, we see the opposite. In, in this, a man is actively seeking it. He knows what he's searching for, and he finds this pearl. Once he finds this pearl that goes beyond his expectations, he surrenders everything else up in his collection and his possessions to purchase this pearl. And I love how Jesus captures all of the listeners. For many of us, it captures the people who are not looking for God. That's probably the man who uh, stumbled across the hidden treasure in the field. And then, and on the same token, the treasure of the kingdom is also for those who are actively seeking him, displayed by the parable of the pearl. And just like Jesus, they are willing to give up anything to gain everything. And these are the stories of old and the stories that you read. I've been reading recently a biography about Eric Liddell, who was the famous Olympian who uh, refused to run on Sunday in the 1920s and instead to, chose an, uh, to choose to honor God, even though he was a sure thing for the 100 meters, he decided to run something that was not, which was the 400 meters, and not run on a Sunday because he wanted to honor God and really retain that Sabbath. And eventually, we know the story in that he actually gets and wins uh, the medal. Um, and then later on, he turns away from worldwide fame. Everybody's asking him, hey, are you going to run again? Are you going to be a surefire um, uh, 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 shoe-in for another gold medal and an uh, uh, illustrious career in running? Everybody's going to know you. You're going uh, to get money, and you're going to get sponsors, and you're going to get fame beyond your wildest imagination. And he said to them, no my life, I was born for China. And he went and turned away from that and lived his virtual, the rest of his life as a missionary in China, being threatened, being held at gunpoint at various times in the midst of the boxer, or past the boxer rebellion and the, the Sino-Chinese uh, war and eventually the, the, the rumblings of World War II and his life literally was in question. Out of 99 missionaries that the London Missionary Society had sent, over 33 were killed during their tenure. But Eric Liddell is willing to lose his life for the sake of gaining everything. A treasure that was more than any gold that can ever be offered to him at an Olympic Games. Because Christ is that supremely good kingdom of God is worth more than you can I imagine. The kingdom of God carries a high price. Look at verse 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net who was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it would be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, you could probably envision that scene from Little Nemo. 
um, where Nemo is caught up in that Australian, uh, great Australian barrier reef, and then there's that humongous net, and he's getting swept away and, uh, while his dad is earnestly just trying to save him. Will this adventurous clownfish ever find his way home because, and break free of that net? And that's the story that leads on to eventually him getting lost, making some new friends, and in that trademark Disney-Pixar type of ending where he is reunited. But this is no Pixar movie. Jesus uses a terrifying analogy to show that his net moves silently through the water, silently catching unsuspecting fish of every kind. There is no filter. You know, in fact, the Bible is, is, is truth, but also it is very hard in, gritty truth with the scriptures don't always leave us with a warm, fuzzy feeling. But this is what it's saying. There's, there's a filter, and you're either caught or you're not. Then the fishermen draw their nets ashore, and then they sit down and they separate the good and the bad, where they keep the good, but then they toss the bad away. And Jesus brings it to the terrifying climax at the end of the age, that the angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is reality. And I sincerely believe that there's no Christian can sit here and be untouched by this. At the end of the age, there will be a final sifting. And it goes beyond our human conceptions of what the end will be like. I've never seen angels before, but I don't think that this has a positive function. You know, we here at Hope, we know that we're in the midst of a spiritual warfare, the kingdom of God, between, between that and the kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of Satan obviously is a lesser kingdom, and it's been dealt a terrible blow by Jesus' death and resurrection. And we know that Satan and his demons are out in the world trying to kill, uh, steal, and destroy, and draw people away from the beautiful offer of Jesus and his kingdom. And yet now, because we are believers in Jesus, we are protected, we are redeemed, we are his, and and there's nothing, not even the greatest spiritual force can take us, but yet the enemy is trying to undo us, and that's where we call on uh, God and even his angels to come and minister to us and guard us, and even we ask God to protect us from um, spiritual attack um, in every way. And as I do with my kids, and I know that many of you do as well. But upon this final day, can you believe that there will be a time in which there will be no guardians from the wrath of God? Angels will be unbeknownst and, and separate those who have rejected life or ignore the kingdom of God. I mean, it's those who have remained ambivalent if you have been just kind of kind of up and down, there's no up and down. You've been chasing the pleasures of this world. You cannot protest or change God's mind. They will be thrown in the fiery furnace where there will be unimaginable pain and torment where they will find no rest, no relief from a godless eternity. Have you ever tried to picture your life apart from the presence of God? It should make us shudder. There's an unimaginably high price to pay if we reject the king and his offer. 
And that's why Jesus is saying to us that if you are stuck in the, the wiles of your sin, that there is a Savior, there is a God who has not only come and, and was born like we celebrate on Christmas Day, but there is a God who has come to live primarily to die so that he can take away the wrath and the judgment of God and put it on himself and to die the death that you and I should have lived and to live the life that we should have lived before God, a righteous and a perfect life. And he gave his life as a ransom for many so that you and I can go free that you and I can be redeemed from our sin and from our, the wrath of God and from his judgments. And there is a God who saves us, there's a God who delivers us, and there's a God who destroyed the kingdom of Satan. And that was prophesied in his scripture in the Old Testament. It, it prophesied and predicted um, the promised that was made that there will be a savior who would be the king and who would die and rescue his people from his sins and take away death and all and the law and all of its demands and who would come and bring us into his kingdom. And this is the story of the gospel, the story of a God who not only gives us a picture and a, a picture of salvation, but also he invites us into uh, salvation, but also a relationship with him in which we are promised power and life and salvation. And this salvation can never be taken away from us. And so we will experience reconciliation with the God who made us and we will experience victory in a relationship with God that far outweighs everything in this world. I mean, when you think about your relationship with the living God, can you think of anything better than that? Think of a time in which God, in his grace and his sovereignty, has ever failed you. Think about the times in which you were in the darkest deep in which God held you up. Think about the, the times in which God has powerfully freed you from guilt and anxiety and has reminded you that, he, that you are his, that you are his son and daughter. And remember the preciousness of the gospel in Jesus. You're going to experience your victory in a relationship with God that far outweighs everything in this world. And that's what Jesus talks about in verses 51 and 52. Jesus asked his disciples, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I love this. Jesus takes seven stories and then he asks them a question. <laughs> Do you understand these things? And, uh, and I love their response. They're like, yeah, we do. Kind of makes you wonder, right? <laughs> Especially a couple chapters later um, where, you know, uh, I think it was Peter who asked Jesus, uh, oh, by the way, Jesus, what did you mean by that parable again? And in other gospels, we just see that the disciples are just, you know, rebuked for the hard-heartedness. They just don't get it. Sometimes they don't really get it, even after seeing a ton of miraculous signs and wonders. Um, I think it just reminds us that we should be on guard in trusting in our own human insight or our own experience as if we could understand the scriptures without divine help. Just as I preached about a couple weeks ago, that there was a miracle that was given to us, that we've been given a spiritual LASIK in which we have eyes now that once we were dead and now we are alive. 
we can see the grandness and the majesty of Jesus crucified on that cross. And to see that is in this ugly and this gruesome picture is the most beautiful offer in the world. We've been regenerated to see not only the depths of the gospel, but the depths of his goodness in the scriptures. That we could say with the psalmist that I delight in your word and your word is more precious to me than rubies. We're gifted. Jesus is saying that we're gifted as we are trained by this word, as we are given spiritual eyes, we are given prized insight into the kingdom. And as Jesus is saying, to the one who has, more will be given. It means that when we are discipled in the ways of God's kingdom, the more we can make sense of Genesis through Malachi, the Old Covenant. And Jesus is probably saying that they are able to understand the Old Testament scriptures uh, and to understand them and locate that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament all pointed to. Jesus pictures a homeowner who's in control of everything in his house, both old things and both new, in that he can give insight into the old things, but also bring in and have the power to buy new things. It's kind of like when I uh, bring out my memory boxes for my kids. One day I was looking through some of my old stuff and I had cassette tapes. How many of y'all remember those? Um, I, how many of y'all, you know, thought you were, you were pretty bad to be like, oh, I got a Sony Walkman. Um, and uh, I, got, I, got, I got the FM, the mega bass on there. And, you know, and, and you were rolling around with boom boxes and all those kind of things. Okay, I'm totally dating myself. Nobody's tracking with me. <laughs> But I would have these old cassettes of like old praise team musics, uh, music that I led or sermons. Um, I would have all these old journals. I would have um, some old stuff. But my kids were profoundly interested in one old thing. That was a DVD of me and my baptism, which it turned out that there was more than the baptism on that DVD. There was a very embarrassing video of a skinny 17-year-old, bad hair, bad haircut, uh, Steve Liu giving a trumpet concert in my living room for my parents. Uh, <laughs> It was just horrible. Uh, it, I mean, the music was horrible, but my haircut was horrible. Um, but they just loved it. They broke out laughing as I was giving color commentary on my song choices. And at the very end, I had an accompaniment with my old Yamaha, you know, keyboard. And I set a beat to it. And then I started playing Phantom of the Opera. It was so good. Uh, and... It was just awesome, um, awesomely bad. <laughs> um, but that's the old, right? And in the same way, I can also give them new things from Amazon. In the same way, Jesus' disciples can pull out some of these old storehouses, these old memories from the Old Testament in the, in the Old Covenant, but also point to how all those things pointed to the Christ of the Scriptures. Very much like I can take these old things, these old hopefully forgotten old things, and can point to how that's shaped me. And I remember that. And I just remember um, when that actually came to being. When everything came to grips, where I saw the beauty of the Old Testament, the New Testament, that there was not a God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament. Well, my youth pastor set me aside, and he laid without me, before me, the power of this, the scriptures and how Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. It was like a veil that just came um, uh, ripping down from my soul. And I began to see the graciousness of this king and the power of this king, the truthfulness of this king, and the authority of the scriptures. 
And it's not just about us, right? It's not just about us receiving the glorious kingdom, but it's also about us sharing this kingdom ourselves, right? It's, it's, it's not only the fact that um, I have this old treasure of this memory box that I can just kind of keep in for myself, but the real treasure of it was seeing and sharing that with my kids and allowing them just to, to glory in it. You know, two of my kids um, recently got into a car accident with the van, and it was generally very pretty minor. But again, if you have kids and you have um, car accidents, it's just really scary. Well, went through the whole thing. They were, Ezra and Ian, they were okay. Um, my father-in-law was also okay, and we got to file a claim and get our van repaired. Well, when I went to go to the rental company, I was told um, by the very nervous representative at Enterprise that he only had one car in the lot, and he cringed because he had known that I came in with a Toyota Sienna. He's like, oh, man, this guy has a big family, and he doesn't know who I am. I have a pretty big family. And uh, he's like, oh, hopefully this guy doesn't give me an issue. And so he asked me this question. Would you be okay with a Dodge Challenger? (laughs) <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's brand new, it's 2021, uh, it only has 15,000 miles, it's black. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness, what did he just say? And I was like, you know, I do have a family of seven, and uh, it would be just, it would break my back to try to get into these seats, and it's two doors. Um, I'd have to collapse the seat and try to get the car seats. I don't even know if I could put the car seats in. And, but, you know, I'll try to make do with it. <laughs> um, and I was just like, in my mind, I was just like, yes, <laughs> this 